to see everybody. Let me try that one more time. Good morning. All right, very good. We got to get that down every Sunday, but it's good to see you guys. I hope you enjoyed meeting some other people, saying hi right then. Uh, that's a great thing to do all the time. You know, one of the key things to living life the way God intends is a concept that does not come real natural to us. There are a lot of things God wants for us that are not natural for us. They're good for us, but not natural. And today, I want to talk about one of them. You know, we're pretty quick to self-promote, to talk about self-awareness and things like that. But we are not real uh, adept at talking about or practicing self-denial, which is, I think, what we need to talk about today. It flows right in line with what we're talking about from the book of 1 Peter. If you have your Bible, or you can follow along on the screen if you prefer, but if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and take out your bulletin and a pencil, and we'll fill in some blanks here as we go. Uh, we're going through a series called Aliens. And we're looking through the book of 1 Peter verse by verse as we do so. We're calling it Alien simply because this book of 1 Peter as well as others tell us that Christians, as Christians, we should see ourselves as such, as aliens or as foreigners or exiles or nomads or whatever word you might want to use there, but people that are just passing through. You know, um, I love Colorado. I would guess most everybody in here does as well. That's probably why you live here. We love Colorado, and I'm proud to be an American, and I enjoy planet Earth in a general sense. There's a lot of beautiful things here, but we are not home yet. You know that, right? This is not our home. There's a lot of wonderful things about all the above, but we are not home yet. That's why we consider ourselves aliens. And as we look at 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, I want to show you how I think God wants us to hear through Peter that we should live a life more about self-denial than about self-awareness or self-promotion or any of those types of concepts. In fact, as we look at chapter 4, we'll see three reasons for self-denial that lead us to experience three things the way that God intends. First of all, if you're filling in the blank, here you go. God wants us to experience life, life the way that, uh, that he intends, the way that God intends. You know, the best way to live life or experience life and enjoy life is to do it God's way, right? We know that, but we don't naturally drift that way. But that's really what we should do. That's the essence of why people started wearing at one point the WWJD bracelets. Anybody ever have one of those in the past? Maybe you still do, I don't know. They were a real popular thing for a period of time. That was years ago. But it was just to remind us or whoever wore it what would Jesus do? I should live life with that mindset. What would Jesus do? Well, Peter begins this chapter of 1 Peter chapter 4 with that thought in mind, I think, when he says this in verse 1. Follow along or you can uh, read it in your own Bible with me. But it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. You know, I think the key part of that is to arm yourself with the same attitude that Jesus had. In other words, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Think that way. Arm yourself with that mindset, which is a military term. I mean, be prepared for battle, in other words. Don't be casual about sin, is I think part of what he's trying to say. How many of you have ever thought or used that phrase, you know, um, all things in moderation? You know, there's, there's logic to that in many respects. We think of that in the context of junk food. You know, you know, probably not good to eat at McDonald's all the time, but a little junk food here and there probably isn't going to kill you. All things in moderation. 
We think that way about candy at Halloween time or whatever. I mean, we don't want our kids to eat it all the time, but a little here and there is probably fine. And we tend to think that same way about sin. A little here and a little there is probably not that big a deal. And if we have that mindset, we tend to even compare ourselves to others and go, well, as long as I'm not as bad as that guy or that person or that family, then, you know, I'm probably okay. A little sin isn't that big a deal, right? And yet that's not what Scripture teaches. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says, stay away from every kind of evil. Every kind of evil. In fact, the, the King James Version talks about even avoiding the appearance of evil in that verse. And a Peter, a Peter again here says in, in uh, chapter 4, arm yourselves, verse 1, arm yourselves with the same attitude that Jesus had. Not only in reference to sin, but really in reference to life in general. You know, some things in life or in Scripture are crystal clear, right? They're black and white. There's no debate. It's, it's very obvious what uh, the bottom line is. But there are other parts of life that are kind of gray, right? Grayscale, not real clear. And people often ask me as a pastor, so Scott, what do you think about, you know, maybe like if it's a dating couple. They're not married, they're dating, and they want to talk about, um, you know, the prospect of getting married at some point. And so intimacy will come up. And we'll talk through that. And they say, yeah, so in the context of intimacy, how far is too far? Or, or maybe it's somebody that wants to talk about alcohol. So is drinking a sin, Scott? And, and if not, how many beers or too many beers? Or maybe it's about marijuana or a question about um, cursing or a question about R-rated movies or a question about, you know, there are many, many things that can fit into this gray area that are not crystal clear in terms of how to look at them. And so what I always do when I'm talking to people about that is I tell them about, or talk to them about a cliff. So pretend that this first step here is the edge of a cliff. Literally, it's a thousand feet straight down. To fall would mean certain death. If that were the case, I probably would not stand quite so, you know, casually on the edge of it. So the question becomes, how close is too close? Well, it depends. That's the right answer. It depends. It depends on a variety of things. It's not the same for every person. It depends on how good your balance is. You know, if you're somebody who struggles with that, then you probably better back away. Or it depends also on things like, you know, if it's outdoors, of course, as a cliff, you know, how windy is it? Um, you know, how stable is the ground right here? I mean, is this like crumbly stuff that could give way in that case? You know, you never know. So there are a lot of ways to look at it. How close is too close to that line? Well, it depends. And the bottom line is this. If in doubt, stay further away. If you're not sure, hmm, that still feels a little unsafe, then stay further away. And that's the way we should look at sin as well. If in doubt, stay further away. Give yourself the same advice that you would give your toddler in reference to a cliff. Like, is it, hey, honey, is it okay to let our three-year-old get close to that cliff? Well, I'm not sure. If you're not sure, you're going to keep them further away. Do the same thing with yourself. Don't overestimate your own abilities in that way. Arm yourselves with an attitude like Jesus had. And as a result, they, or, or if we're talking about us, we could say we, do not live life, uh, the rest of, with, with, with earthly lives for human uh, okay, wait a minute. Let me just read it as it says. Verse 2 says, As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's what we should be doing. That reminds me a lot of what Jesus looked like in the garden. 
remember that moment. If you've read the Bible you, or heard the story, Jesus, the night before he went to the cross, said, oh, Lord God, I don't want to do this. You know, I'm paraphrasing, but I don't want to do this. But, not my will, but what? But yours be done. It's not about my will. It's not about my human desires, but rather the will of God. Self-denial. Learning to live life the way that God would want us to. You know, our goal, according to Scripture, is not happiness, but holiness. A lot of people miss out on this or fail to understand that. Or even if they hear it, they're like, I don't think I... Know if I, I don't know if I believe that, but that is absolutely what Scripture teaches. Our goal is holiness, not happiness. If you want to live life the way God intends, you need to experience life the way He wants, and that is to focus on holiness, not happiness. Now, I will tell you this, joy, and oftentimes, therefore, even happiness, which can be a byproduct of joy, uh, happiness can come when you live life the way God wants you to, when you're focused on honoring Him, instead of pursuing your own selfish desires and happiness. But I would encourage you all to recognize that while the American dream is fine in many respects, it is not really our primary focus. We should not be focused on the American dream nearly as much as we should be focused on the dreams that God would have for all of us. And the more we do that, the more healthy our lives become and the more happiness and joy we often have as well. But don't ever, don't ever forget our goal is not happiness, it is holiness, to honor the Lord, to live for Jesus because he died for me, for you. Now in John 10, 10, Jesus does talk about coming to give us life to the full, life more abundantly, so we can actually do both in the sense that we can live a life of self-denial and still enjoy life, live a life to the full, life abundantly, but we have to do it his way. Do it the way that God lays out for us. I think Jesus would uh, pretty much say the exact same thing that Peter is saying here. In fact, he, he worded it this way in Matthew 16 when he talked about living life in a counterintuitive way, focused on self-denial. Jesus put it like this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, focusing on others rather than self, pouring yourself into others is ironically and amazingly productive and fulfilling. I mean, it's not what you would think. I mean, the natural thing would be to think if you want to be happy, you pursue your own happiness. But the truth is, it works the opposite way. If you want to be happy, happy is not really the best word. If you want to be joyful and contented and fulfilled in life, you focus on other people. And the more you do that, the more you'll find yourself being fulfilled and satisfied. Think about the happiest people, or maybe again, the better word would be the most joyful, the most fulfilled, the most content, you know, the people who sleep the best, who have the biggest smiles on their face in your life. Who, who do you know that fits that bill? I would, I would propose that most all of them that fit that, that come to your mind, are people that get this. They understand this. They are, they are selfless. They live a life of self-denial. They focus on other people more than themselves. At least that's my experience. And that says a lot. So, first of all, Peter is teaching us that living a life of self-denial helps us experience life 
the way that God intends, life here on this earth. But secondly, more importantly, living a life of self-denial helps us experience eternity the way that God intends. And that's what matters most. I mean, eternity is really what matters most, right? Now, eternity is like the light at the end of a tunnel, which can be scary or sad, uh, scary or, or actually exciting, depending on how you look at it. If you think of yourself in a tunnel and you see a light and you think, oh my word, that's a train coming on and I'm you know, about to get ran over, well then the light at the end of the tunnel is scary, right? But if you see yourself as trapped in a tunnel, you're tired of the darkness, you want to find a way out, and all of a sudden you see the light and you recognize that is sunshine, then the light is a beautiful and exciting thing. It depends on how you look at that light. And God wants us to experience eternity the way that He intends. Here's what He says in verse 3 here. He says, For For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And then he gives this list. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's quite a list. Peter's probably writing here to non-believers or Gentiles rather than than Christians who were formerly Jews that have turned Christian. He's probably writing to unbelievers because if he were writing to the Christian people, their list would probably look different. Most Jewish people turned Christian, their list would be more like sins of the heart, sins of the spirit rather than than sins of the flesh. Things like pride and gossip and self-righteousness. But here's the deal. Make no mistake, all sin is sin. All sin separates us. It doesn't matter what the list looks like. All sin separates us from God and has potential to lead us to experience eternity the way that God does not intend. Well, anyway, he goes on to say, they, verse 4, they, the pagans, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Now, the second half of this chapter talks about this kind of suffering, suffering because of your faith. Um, Talks about that quite a bit, and Mac Owen last week nailed it, talking about that. If you were not here last week and you missed that, you really need to get online and listen to that message. Um, he did a fantastic job. We kind of went out of order. We looked at the second half of the chapter last week and the first half of the chapter this week just for scheduling reasons. But, but Mac really nailed that, so you need to listen to that if you want to know more about this concept of suffering for honoring the Lord. But sometimes we do go through suffering that we don't understand, suffering that, that we have to trust God, that He's going to mature us and develop us and, and grow us through it. But other times we suffer simply because we brought it on ourselves by doing reckless or wild living, making bad choices. You know, verse 4 again, he says, they are surprised that, they, that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, like you might have done if you were not a Christian. He says, and they heap abuse on you. But verse 5, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will have to give an account. We will all have to give an account. Mac nailed that as well last week, talking about how all of us have to do so. So don't get smug or look down your nose at anyone else, regardless of their reckless and wild living, as pagans or as anybody else, because we will all give an account for our sins. Now, your sin may look different than somebody else's, but trust us, it smells the same. All sin smells the same in that it reeks. You know, it it, it smells rotten and nasty or whatever word you want to use. All sin is the same in that respect. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I can look back and see mistakes and sin, some even recent, but especially when I was younger. And yet I don't dwell on that. 
I, don't, I definitely don't worry about that. Not because I'm so wonderful and am past it all and never make mistakes anymore. I don't worry about it because I know I'm forgiven. Because I can stand before you as your pastor, and if you know me well, you know that I talk about and am pretty open about mistakes I make. I'm not afraid to admit that. But I'm also quick to just say it's not about that. It's about the, the fact that Jesus loved me so much that he went to the cross and died for me. And I'm all in. I am living for him. And therefore, I'm excited about the light at the end of the tunnel. It's an exciting thing to me because I know I am forgiven. And if you're not in that boat, you know, if the light at the end of the tunnel looks scary, more like an oncoming train, then you just need to make changes and surrender and give your life to the Lord. And then the light at the end of the tunnel becomes exciting for you again or for the first time. We need to chase after what matters most. You know, many people are pretty similar to Solomon today. Solomon um, said that even though he chased after all these things, and in the end he said it's all like chasing the wind. It's all useless. It matters nothing. Solomon had it all in many respects. I mean, he had the, you know, the best wine, the best clothing, the best palace, the best treasury. Some would think even the best sex, although that's not true. The truth is, Scripture teaches he just had the most, maybe he had the most sex. Because the Bible does say, it's crazy to imagine, he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Like, wow. You know, but that, that's a little sidebar. But the point is, is that, <laughs> the point is that, the best sex does not come like that. The best sex on the planet is enjoyed by a man and a wife doing things the way God has set it up. Between, uh, marriage should be between one man and one woman for life. That's the way that you would be there. But anyway, Solomon, in many respects, would be somebody that others would look at and go, wow, he had it all. But even he said, oh, you know, it's all meaningless, like chasing after the wind. We shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't chase after all those things. We should chase after or pursue or hunger and thirst for righteousness, for Jesus, a relationship with Him. Many people are, again, though, like Solomon, and maybe you. You may not be filthy rich like him, but you might be like him in that you have plenty to live on. You're just short on what to live for. I don't know if that's you, but if it is, it's correctable. It's fixable right here today. Don't be one of those. Don't be like the people Peter is talking about. Don't be like Solomon in that respect. Verse 5 continues, But they will have to give an account, as we all will, have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Galatians 6 tells us, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And ladies, that goes for you as well. All of us. Sometimes we reap what we have coming to us. We all reap what we sow, and sometimes that happens on earth. In other words, if you drink too much, you might have liver failure. You eat too much, you might get diabetes. You don't follow God's plan for sex, you might get a sexually transmitted disease, or at least a lot of heartache and heartbreak and loneliness or whatever. But sometimes those consequences don't come to us until we reach eternity. Maybe you live life on this earth unscathed by some of that. That's not likely, but it's possible. But the point would be that all of us, according to God's word in Galatians, we need to understand that God is not mocked. A man or woman reap what they sow. We all reap what we sow. Hebrews 9 tells us we need to understand that we're all destined to die once and after that to face punishment. 
or face judgment, actually. Verse 7 in our text, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 says, The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and be sober and be and of sober mind so that you may pray. Listen, I don't know when, but I know Jesus is coming back. And I'm excited about that. I don't know if everybody in the room is, but I'm excited and, and filled with anticipation of that day. When that comes, what an incredible day. When terrible tragedies happen like happened yesterday in Pittsburgh, when you hear about things like that, it just makes me think, oh, dear God. Let your kingdom come. Oh, I look forward to when Jesus comes. There's a book by Robert Lee that's titled Payday Someday. It's true for all of us, whether we believe in the Lord or not, regardless of what that light at the end of the tunnel looks like to us, exciting, scary, either way. Payday Someday is coming for all of us. And I get frustrated. Actually, no, the better words, I get sad when I think about all those who live for self self-promotion, that kind of thing, rather than self-denial and selflessness. Some say, yeah, what, in, what, what is our world coming to? Maybe they say that with some fear or with anger or despair or whatever, but different emotions might come. Yeah, what is our world coming to? I'll tell you what our world is coming to. Our world is coming to a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. No matter who you are today, every knee is going to bow someday. Every knee, every tongue will confess. As Peter's point is that, and Jesus would, would say the same, is that he wants us, they want us to experience eternity the way God intends for us. You don't have to be afraid of verses like this in verse 7 where it says, the end of all things is near. Rather than making your heart beat fast like, oh, that's, ner that's nerve-wracking or scary, that should make you excited with anticipation the end of all things is coming. Jesus is coming back soon. Amen. That's going to be an incredible moment. Now, for some, that is a scary thing, but it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be. I love scriptures about heaven. There's so many of them. I, I love, like in 1 Corinthians, when the Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Oh, what a beautiful thought. Or what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 2, when he says, No eye is seen, no ear is heard. No mind has even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I love how the apostle, uh, no, when John actually, when John was, um, I started to say the apostle Paul, but when John in chapter 21 of Revelation was allowed to talk about heaven, he saw a foretaste of it, a glimpse of it, and he wrote, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. I love this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Isn't that awesome? Or in John 14 when Jesus talks about it, when he says, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. There's a room for you and me, for everybody that needs a room. There's plenty of room. And, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare that place for you, you can trust, you can count on the fact that I will come back when it's ready at just the right time and take you to be there with me as well. I love stuff like that. But again, the idea of eternity, heaven, is actually scary to some people because they're not ready. 
But there's no reason to not be ready. There's no reason, if you're one of them, to leave this room not ready. The only difference between people like me and people like that are that one is all in and has sold out and said, God, I'm all yours. I am all yours. You know, Jesus, take the wheel. Sing it like Carrie Underwood. Here you go, Lord. You're in charge. I don't want to be the boss. You're in charge. And if you just surrender your life to him, the light at the end of the tunnel can become an exciting thing. There's an anonymous poem called What Then? Here's part of it. When the choir has sung its last anthem and the preacher has voiced his last prayer, when the people have heard their last sermon and the sound has died out in the air, when the Bible lies closed in the pulpit and the pews are all empty of men, when we stand, each one facing his record, and the great book is opened, what then? You know, life is not about the two dates on your tombstone. Rob Gleghorn talked about this in the, the, the gym class, the elder-led class that's on every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right over there. If you've not come to that, you might want to check it out. It's fantastic. He and Bob and others uh, do, and Mac do a great job in there when they take turns. But anyway, uh, Rob last week was talking about this concept. The dates on the tombstone are important, but they're not the most important part of that little equation. It's the dash in between that matters most. But even then, when you think about that dash in the middle, it's still just a brief little blink of an eye. It's still just a short little bit of time. But that's what we need to dwell on most when it comes to our life on this earth, is that time because that's what prepares us for eternity. We each have an opportunity to, to surrender our lives to Jesus, to do what Jesus did and, did and what he talked about when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Live a life of self-denial, knowing that whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for him will find it. Again, in our chapter here, verse 7, the end of all things is near. We need to be ready. It's near. It's approaching. And we each have a chance to get ready. In fact, we'll have that in just a moment. As we look at the last few verses, though, of this text, I want you to see how Peter teaches that we're not only here to experience life the way God intends and eternity the way God intends, which is most of all, but along the way, he even wants us to experience community the way that God intends. Community. Above all, he says in verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. It's a great verse, often quoted. Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter goes on from here, and I'll just talk about it briefly, to share with us a picture of what community should look like in our church or in any church or the church universal. I think there are four key words that are um, at least inferred here. The first would be clearly written there. It, we should be a loving community. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is incredible. We should love as as God wants us to love, not the way the world loves. I mean, Jesus talked in Matthew 5 about how if you love the way the world loves, if you love others just because they loved you, if you scratch their back because they scratched yours, if you love those who love you, he said, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors and Pharisees and, and, uh, and pagans even doing that? I mean, that's fine, but we need to go a lot deeper than that. That's the word here Peter uses. We need to love deeply. Peter seems to be loosely quoting Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. So first of all, 
Four words, I think, that describe a loving community or a, a community the way that God wants would be a loving community, first of all, and secondly, we need to be a forgiving community. The word's not even in that passage there, but when it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins, that's what forgiveness is. It's covering over the sins. It's forgiving, covering. That's what forgiveness looks like. We need to be a forgiving community. We need to live out Ephesians 4.32, which says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave us. I mean, as Christians, we should forgive the faults of others because we have experienced the forgiveness God has given us. Quick to forgive is a beautiful thing. But thirdly, in addition to being a loving community and a forgiving community, we should be a welcoming community. Look at verse 9. It says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now that comes more naturally to some than others. The gift of hospitality is a spiritual gift that God blesses uh, some with. The whole concept of spiritual gifts is a beautiful thing. In fact, if you're not sure what your spiritual gift is, come talk to me or Rob or one of the other elders. There are spiritual gift tests or inventories you can take that are pretty simple that will help, help you determine that. But God has given different people different spiritual gifts, and to some He has given this gift of hospitality. So it comes maybe more naturally for some than it does for others. But even if you've not been given that gift, you don't get a pass, okay? It doesn't mean like, so the people that I've blessed with the gift of hospitality, they need to be hospitable, but the rest of you, uh, you can be jerks. That's fine. That's not what Scripture teaches. We all need to be hospitable. Jane, or, I mean, Peter's making that very clear here. And, and whether it's natural or not, we need to all work toward that. Now, I think in a practical way, that might look like for example, when you come to a place like this on a Sunday morning, you look for somebody that you don't know and you go talk to them. Maybe they're new. Maybe they're hurting in some way and they need you or need somebody to love them and help them. Maybe it goes beyond just a hello and a handshake and a, you know, a, a hug or whatever, but you say, hey, what are you doing for lunch? And you take them to lunch. Maybe you, in advance, you plan that and you put something in the crock pot and you have it ready to go. Or you don't do it at your house and you say, hey, let's all go eat at AJ's or you know, subway or what pick a spot somewhere and just say let's all go there and you spend some time getting to know other people but you see a need and you meet a need and the way you do that is to first look for the need right you're not going to see any need let alone meet a need if you don't first look for it and so we need to look to be hospitable look for ways to do that and fourthly the fourth word would be uh, we need to be a serving community a serving community look at how he says this in verse 10 he says each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Those are the four words that should describe us as a church according to this passage. We need to be a loving community, a forgiving community, a welcoming community, and a serving community. Now we talk about serving and volunteering quite a bit here at Impact because it's important to serve. Debbie Blackwell needs help with leading the children's ministry downstairs. Chad needs help putting together a, a youth program for our teens. Um, Kim and Joel need help with people, whether it be with instrumentation or running the sound or video or other things like that behind the scenes. There are lots of places where it is important for you to serve because there's a hole, there's a need. But serving is important not just for that reason. It's good because it's good for you, not just serving others. It really is good for you. As I said earlier, I, I, and I, I would love to hear, you, hear anybody kind of explain to me how they think otherwise, but 
I would contend that most of the people on our planet that have the biggest joy, the biggest smiles, and the most joy in their life are people who get this, people who serve others, who care about others, who don't live life focused on self, but focus on other people. If you're not sure about it, if you're not there, then try it. How about try it? Say, how about for 90 days, three months? I'm going to get involved and plug in. I'm not currently plugged in or serving anybody, but I want to start doing that. I want to find a way to make a difference. Come talk to me or somebody else on staff. We'll help you find a spot that fits you well. Again, it's not about ability. It's about availability. God doesn't care so much about whether you're talented. He cares about whether you're willing. That's really what it matters, what, what matters most. But anyway, either way is fine serving here or serving out in the community. Maybe you find a way to serve and you work at Choices or at the food pantry, or there are lots and lots of other places you can serve. But either way is fine. As Peter continues, he says this to wrap up this section of Scripture. He says in verse 11, If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You know, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church said, God gave you a gift, not for you, but for me. And God gave me a gift, not for me, but for you. There's a story about a teacher who once wrote about some fourth grade students. Um, they were given an opportunity to play a game in their class at school. It's called Balloon Stomp. A balloon is tied around your ankle. Everybody has a balloon tied around their ankle, and the instructions are simple, and that is try to protect your balloon, but pop everybody else's. And the last person standing with an unpopped balloon is the winner. So it's, you know, it's a fun game. And he tells the story about how this fourth grade class was given that instruction, and everybody had their balloons, and boom, the whistle went, and everybody started playing, and it was, you know, craziness, and got a little bit out of control even, as everybody's just going wild and crazy, and it was over in a matter of less than a minute. And there was, you know, one kid standing there, his hands raised, and he still had his balloon, and everybody else looked a little deflated. <laughs> Sorry, I know, that's terrible. Sorry, that's terrible. But anyway... <laughs> Seriously, it's a hard game to, to win. Only one person wins, and even that one winner is not generally celebrated. Well, here's what the story then continued to say, or that the teacher said. He said, then another class got to teach it. But instead of a fourth grade class of a bunch of nine and ten-year-olds, they played the game again with a class of special needs children, developmentally challenged children. They were brought into the room, given the exact same instructions, the same balloons, or balloons were put on their feet as well. The whistle blew, and they started playing the game as well. But somehow, the only thing that seemed to register in their mind was that the balloons needed to be popped. But they didn't understand the competition part, and so they started cooperating. And so, like one little girl knelt down and held her balloon like a holder for a field goal kicker in football, so the little boy beside, him, beside her could stomp on it. And then he got up and held his balloon real close and careful so she could stomp it. That all continued until everybody's balloon was pop popped, and when the last balloon popped, all of them grabbed arms, and they all raised their hands, and they all celebrated because they all were winners. And the question then becomes, who, which class got it right? 
I, I love competition. I think there's a time and place for competition. That's not the point. It's fine and wonderful in that respect. But we need to be, as a church, if we're going to honor the Lord, as a loving and serving and, and hospitable and a forgiving group of people, we need to be about cooperation and love for one another. Ultimately, for the sake of experiencing life on this planet and most of all, eternity to come the way God intends. And the way we do that is by living a life of self-denial, not about ourselves, but about others. Honoring Him, serving Him, being who God wants us to be. I want to ask you if you would to stand. We're going to close by singing together a song called I Have Decided. You know, the last line of that poem goes like this. When the crowds seeking pleasure have vanished and gone out into the darkness again, when the trumpet of ages has sounded and we all stand before Jesus, what then? I would encourage you to understand that the light at the end of the tunnel is near. The end of all things, as Peter said, is near. But rather than being afraid of that light, you can be excited about that light if you simply surrender your life to the Lord. If you sing this song and live this song by saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I'm all in. If you want to do that, I encourage you to come.